To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exalt over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. This is the first five verses of Psalm 25, which is the psalm appointed for today, Monday, July the 12th, 2021. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today. We're continuing our study in the books of 1 Samuel and Acts and also in the Gospel of Mark. And today it has to do with what does what is your anointing and who appointed you and and are you standing firm and confident in that anointing and appointing or are you still struggling with with pleasing somebody other than the one who anointed and appointed you and that's the problem that we get here in the passage from 1 Samuel which is 1 Samuel 18 5 to 16 and then skipping forward to verses 27 to 30. So David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul set him over the men of the war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistines, if the women came, the women came out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy and with musical instruments. And they sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. Not surprisingly, the next sentence says, and Saul was very angry, and this saying displeased him. Well, of course it did, because David is being given credit for doing ten times as much as Saul. And so we know that Saul is a guy who is not confident. He he seeks to please people. He wants the acclaim and the applause of people rather than the acclaim and the applause of God. Maybe... Just maybe Saul's appointing and anointing wasn't to be striking down ten thousands. Maybe that was David's anointing. And so that's the thing that people, I think, have a bigger problem with than anything else in, in leadership in the church. And whether you're in leadership or you're not in leadership in the church, maybe you just want to be in leadership. But, but the biggest problem we have in leadership in the church are people who, who are um, easily threatened, people who, who are not confident in their own calling. And, and Saul, remember, was, was anointed by Samuel, and the anointing itself was, was confirmed by signs that Saul was given. So he had every reason in the world to know and embrace the reality that God had chosen him to be the king. And as such, he would be the servant of God. So he would be God's representative to the people in the same way that Moses had been God's representative to the people, and yet Saul couldn't rest in that. He was concerned about how the people would perceive his leadership if he didn't do things that would please them. He wanted to lead like other kings, and what God wanted was a man who would lead like he would lead, who would listen to him, take his cues and instruction from him, and then lead the people. And, and so the point is to lead the people into righteousness. And it's the same thing in the church. Is the goal of leadership is to represent God to the people and the people to God in prayer. And it's to lead people into the paths of righteousness. It's not to do nine million other things. And it's not to do those things which just please the people who happen to be the loudest. And yet that's what 
happens so often in the church, and then somebody else will, will get raised up, and now you, you've gotten upset, and you think that, that something is being taken away from you because somebody else has it. And so that's what's going on with this. He says, they've ascribed to David tens of thousands, and to me they've ascribed thousands, and what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. And so then, you know, remember that this evil spirit would rush on Saul and David would play the liar and it would calm him down. Well, this day, what we see is that Saul's got his spear in his hand and he hurled the spear for he thought, I'll pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. He tried to kill him while he was playing this in order to calm Saul. He was afraid of David because the Lord was with him but had departed from Saul. Well, the fear, again... Saul's constant problem is that he has a fear of man. And that's what you see here. He, fe- he was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. Who should he fear? Who should we fear? Should we fear men or should we fear God? So Saul constantly had this fear of man that caused him to do all manner of stupid things outside of what the Lord had told him to do. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. And David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. Saul hid himself from the people. And David was, was coming and going. He lived a public life in front of the people. And, and God blessed the things that he did. And then David arose and went along with his men, and killed 200 of the Philistines and brought their foreskins back to the king that, he, that as sort of a bride price that he might become the king's son-in-law. And Saul gave him his daughter Michal for his wife. But when Saul saw and knew the Lord was with David and that Michal, Saul's daughter, loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David. Saul was David's enemy continually. How miserable, right? Not just to have a father-in-law who hated you and who had declared himself to be your enemy, but also the king whose armies you commanded had determined that you were his enemy. And so as they came out, David had more success against the Philistines than all the servants of Saul, so that his name was highly esteemed. So the, the better David did, the worse in some ways it got, for David even. You've got this man who is afraid of man. He has a a terrible fear of man and can't overcome it. Doesn't seem to even be able to see what his actual problem is, that he fears man more than he fears the Lord. And the Lord's the one who raised him up and put him in that position. And hey, I'm not picking on people. I've had that same problem. I want to please people. And when I led a church, you know, most of my mistakes came from wanting to please somebody or somebody's um, and and make them happy. And usually what that did was that, that that caused a problem somewhere else because I was kowtowing supposedly to that, this person or that person. In some cases they were right. You know, that's just the honest truth is, is that the biggest mistakes I made in pastoral ministry and leadership, really not pastoral ministry so much as leadership had to do with that very thing. With, with the with pleasing people rather than pleasing God, rather than coming before him and say, let's get on our knees and let's pray about this, then I would too often do what the person in front of me wanted me to do. So I, I know this fear of man well because it's, it, it can manifest itself in, in a couple of different ways, but pleasing people, wanting to be a people pleaser, is actually the same thing as fear of man. Because you, you, you please what you can see. You're fixing a problem that you can see, not a problem that you can't see. And so 
So th- then you've got to come back and somehow make this right with God. And, and that becomes a difficult thing. But we tend to respond to what's in front of us, what the, the, the evidence of our eyes. It, it, Jesus didn't do that, right? I mean, Jesus didn't care where the chips fell in anything that he did. And, and sometimes that was in confrontation with the leadership that ultimately leads to his crucifixion. Sometimes it was, it was far more benign than that. Um, when, but because he, he marched to the beat, not of his own drummer, but, but to the beat of the Father. And so what we see in this Mark lesson today is they, they leave and they come to Capernaum and they go to the home of Simon and Andrew and his mother-in-law, Simon's mother-in-law, lay ill with a fever and immediately they told Jesus about her and he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up and the fever left her. And then that evening at sundown, because it was a Sabbath day, they couldn't do anything until sundown. People couldn't get out and about until sundown and the day it ended. So they brought him to all those who were to him, all those who were sick and oppressed by demons and the whole city gathered together at his door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. That seems an odd thing, except for the fact that that this was not to be um, attested by demons. That that spirit is not a welcome um, witness to Jesus. The people have to decide by these signs. He didn't want them to follow the testimony of demons. Because then what happens is you get attached to that testimony and you don't have the spiritual discernment to know that what's telling you this is a demon. And so <clears throat> Jesus rises early in the morning after this incredible ministry success after uh, sundown that day. And while it was still dark, he departed and went to a desolate place and there he prayed. And then Simon and the others came looking for him. They found him and said, hey, everybody's looking for you. You're really popular. You know, This is a great place. And he said to them, let's go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for this is why I came out. And then he went all through Galilee, preaching in the synagogues and casting out demons. And so Jesus was was not swayed by public opinion. He knew why he had come. And he had come not just to reach this one town and everybody, everybody gather together in that place. No, it, it was the same mission that he gave the apostles and the same mission that he gives us, which is to go, to go and tell. And so, nope, it's got to be that that all the Jews in that region have to know and have to see this for themselves. It's not, it can't be just secondhand information at this point. There's a decision that's going to have to be made throughout all um, the the land of Israel about who Jesus is. And nobody is going to have the, the opportunity to say, well, I didn't see this for myself and therefore I can't be held responsible. No, they all say crucify him. At the end, and so as he's going through Galilee, and a leper comes to him, imploring him, kneeling him, and says to him, "If you will, you can make me clean." This, this to me, as I've said this before, uh, is so powerful. Moved with pity, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched the man, and said to him, "I will be clean." I mean, you contracted leprosy by touching this man. That's the way it works. That's you've heard me say this a thousand times. The math only goes one way. If you're otherwise clean and you touch something that's unclean, you become unclean. Except for this man becomes clean. His leprosy is gone. Poof, it left him and he's made clean. Now the math doesn't work anymore. Well, wait a minute. If he became clean by the touch, then what does that make the one who touched him and caused that to happen? Well, it makes him holy. Makes him holy. Makes him more than that. He's not diminished by contact with uncleanness. He's not changed into a different status. What he touches is that there's no one else on earth who does that. That's not how it works. 
So Jesus is, is showing by touching this guy, rather than just speaking over him, which is all he really had to do, he didn't have to touch him at all, but he's showing us something here about his own nature, that he is above all this notion of clean and unclean that we live in. He's holy. And when something holy touches something that is unclean, it makes it clean. And so that's exactly what happens. And so it's a cue that Jesus is something more than just a man, just a carpenter from Nazareth, that, that there's something more. And those questions should come up. It's the same question that comes up when Jesus speaks to the wind and the waves. And they say, who is this? Who speaks to the wind and the waves and they obey him? And it's the same thing here. How does he avoid that? How does, how does he transmit something without having received anything on the other side. And so Jesus sternly charged the man and sent him away at once and said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But the man then went out and began to talk freely about it and spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town but was in desolate places and people were coming to see him from every quarter. Now the, the thing that he tells him to do is to go show himself to the priest and offer uh, for your cleansing what Moses commanded. Well, what that is is a sin offering. So sort of the, the way that, that Jews understand leprosy is, is that this kind of leprosy was not uh, Hansen's disease. It was not a communicable disease. It was actually a, a punishment put on the person by God, and it's only possible in the land when Israel is one. It's essentially speaking about leadership or speaking badly about leadership and, and gossiping, and that the sign for that uh, was this leprosy, which caused you to be separated from the people for some period of time until that thing was cleansed and healed. And so it would be nice if that kind of stuff still happened in some ways, because then we could see, oh, okay, well, you've got a problem. And, and we need to deal with that problem. Instead, the reality is we know. <laughs> and we engage in it and we indulge it rather than stomping on uh, that gossip that can go on in, in Christian communities. And so it, 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 this guy um, immediately goes and does this rather than making the sin offering. Because there's a confession and repentance that go along with making that offering. And Jesus tells him to do it. So he affirms the understanding that this is somehow related to sin. In this, but Jesus, Jesus, in all of this, is not looking to please anyone. He's not looking to do what anybody asks him to do. He's not. He's calling the tune, not the people. You see this with Paul too. I mean, and the guy that impresses me more than anybody else in all of this is Barnabas, right? So, in that Acts lesson, so they're scattered because of the persecution, and they traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, spreading the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of the men of Cyprus and Cyrene, those guys who were from further flung areas who came into contact with more Jews, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. Remember Barnabas was the guy who comes and sells a field and gives the entire proceeds to the young church. and He was called the encourager after that, or the son of encouragement. And so they decide to send Barnabas to Antioch and see what's going on out there. And so he goes, and 
when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. And this is the graciousness of Barnabas as in contrast to Saul in our Old Testament lesson. Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, Paul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. So remember, too, that in addition to bringing the proceeds of the sale of that field to the apostles' feet, he is also the one, Barnabas is, the one who brought Saul in and vouched for him in Jerusalem when nobody trusted him because of his previous lifestyle. And now here he goes and finds Paul back at home where Paul had fled when he left from Damascus. And he goes and finds him and brings him and says, it's time for you to step into the anointing God's given you. He believed in Paul so completely that he gave up his own ministry there and went and got Paul and brought him to Antioch to further this work. He thought Saul had something worth bringing to the table here. And so he's the guy who raises Paul up and sets him in the place of ministry the Lord had carved out for him. But Barnabas is not... Uh, jealous at all for that. He's the one, in fact, who goes and does this. He, he knew what his role was. He was confident in that. He could stand in the love of the Lord and be complete and satisfied with the role he had personally been given. And so now, while this is going on, one of the prophets comes from Jerusalem to Antioch and tells there's going to be a great famine all over the world. And they believed him, and they determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judah, and they did so, sending it by the elders, by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. And so you get these guys. It's, it's one of the things that we just have to remember is, what is it that God has called you to do? Sometimes you have to wait to step into that place that he's given you, which is Paul's thing here. He had to wait for some period of time. We're not sure how long it was, a couple of years or maybe 15 years, and nobody's quite sure how long that was. David had to wait seven to nine years after he was anointed as king to step into that role as well. And so how do you do in the waiting? How do you, how do you handle that period of time? And are you faithful to the commission that you've been given or, or in that period of time? Because you're not supposed to waste it. Um, are you faithful to that? And are you satisfied with a lot that God has given you? Or are you seeking after what somebody else's place is? And can you celebrate the success of another without allowing it to diminish you in any way?